Luke 23, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he has heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribe stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they'd asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. O Lord, my words, words on a page, words on a screen, can capture only a glimpse of the depth of what this means. Lord, would you help us this morning to have minds and ears and hearts that understand the depth of what your Son accomplished here. Lord, may we see what this is all about, and may we be changed by what your Son did for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, since last summer, 2019, our family had been planning to take a trip to Washington, D.C. in May. But as you know, plans were derailed for many people this year. But Before we got to our derailment, we were often asking people, well, when we go to D.C., what should we go look at? Even in four days, there's so many museums and places you can go see that you're going, we can only touch the tip of the iceberg. What are the things we have to see because we're going to be there for such a short time? We want to get the best. We don't want to settle for something good when there's something better. You know, I bring that up because what if, You only had time to show someone one thing in the Bible. What is the most important? Yeah, there's a lot of good things. There's a lot of wonderful things. But one thing is what matters. Some people say, oh, then we need John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's where I would take him. Other people will look, Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through love for one another, love for enemies. That's where we should take people so they can understand how to live. And we could give lots of other places that people would turn. And while all of those, I think, have merit, and all of them are good, I want to argue this morning that if you had one place to take someone in Scripture, you would want to take them to the cross of Christ. This is the pinnacle of the Bible. If you look at a map of the U.S., you may see a line from northwest Canada going down through the states down into Mexico. And you may know that line is called the Continental Divide. If you are on the west side of that divide, every single drop of rain, every melt of snow will eventually end up, if not evaporated, into the Pacific Ocean. If you go one centimeter on the other side of that divide to the east, every single drop of rain, every melting of snow goes to bodies of water on the east. The cross of Christ is the continental divide in Scripture. Everything flows from that. So if you want to understand why is it that we can know God's love, well, look at the cross. If you want to understand marriage, you should look at the cross. If you want to get control of your desires for food, for money, for sex, look at the cross. If you want to know any truth, it starts with the cross of Christ and flows from there. This is the continental divide. And so we have to pay special attention to get this right. Because if we err here to change the analogy, we will lay the foundation wrong. And if we're off by half an inch at the foundation, by the time we're at a farther wall, we'll be half a foot off. And so we have to understand what is the cross all about. Because we're so used to it, but as you read it and think of it afresh, it's rather a strange story. It's a story of a man who four times is declared by the judges to be innocent. And at the end, he's killed. What's going on? Why would this happen? Why is Jesus condemned and put to death? But as we'll see, this was all God's plan. If you have a bulletin, I've kind of laid it out as going through it. Because first we see Pilate. He says, Jesus has no guilt. Then he takes him to Herod. He says, Jesus doesn't deserve death. Then back to Pilate. Jesus did no evil. And so if you were reading this story for the first time, you would then think, so Jesus is released. And yet then shockingly, the story ends with the people in Pilate saying, so Jesus shall be crucified. So why is that the case? Well, let's dive into this and we'll see verse first, verses 1 through 5, where Pilate says Jesus has no guilt. If you remember from last time, Jesus has been put on trial by the Sanhedrin in the early mornings of this day, and now they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate was a Roman leader over the region. He oversaw the finances, he saw the laws, and he oversaw, make sure there's order. And the Roman law said the Jews can convict and give charges for many things, but one thing they cannot do is put someone to death. So if the Sanhedrin wants Jesus put to death, they have to bring him to Pilate. And so they bring him, and once they get Jesus to Pilate, they bring three accusations against him in verse 2. First, they say, look, Jesus is leading the nation astray. In other words, look, he's disturbing the peace. He's leading to social chaos. Now, this is really highly subjective. There's really no proof 
that this is true. In fact, that very night, when chaos had begun to erupt with Peter pulling out a sword due to them coming out with swords and clubs, Jesus calmed the situation. So this really has no truthfulness to it. Well, second, they claim, well, Jesus is saying we shouldn't pay our taxes. Well, that is a complete lie. Jesus said in Luke 20, 25, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is a complete fabrication, but you can imagine Pilate going, well, that's serious. My job is to make sure the taxes get to Rome, and if this man is saying not to pay them, I need to take care of this. And third, they say, look, this man, Jesus, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Now, that wouldn't mean anything to Pilate, so they explain that means he's claiming to be the king. Now, is that charge true? Well, it depends. If you mean, is Jesus the king of kings, then yes. And he even will have a discussion with Pilate. You can read it in John 20, where John 18 actually, where they go back and forth. And Jesus basically says, you would have no authority unless I, the king of all things, gave it to you. And so, yes, I'm a king, but no, he's not a king in the sense that they mean. He's not a king who came to overthrow Rome. And so Pilate should have no fear of Jesus. So Pilate has heard these three accusations, so he does what he should. He talks to Jesus. He says, well, are you the king of the Jews? And they have this back and forth where Jesus says, you've said so, kind of implying, well, on one hand, yes, but on another hand, no. My kingdom's not of this world. I'm not the type of king who's going to come in and overthrow because I have a bigger agenda than just overthrowing Rome. So after this conversation, Pilate tells the Sanhedrin, look, I find no guilt in him. However, they insist. No, his teachings, they're going all the way from Galilee Galilee to here. He's causing chaos in the whole country. In other words, they want Pilate to think, look, if you release Jesus, you are being dangerous to the very territory you are supposed to be protecting. One of the key things to notice from here, and we're going to see this four times, is that each time Jesus is brought before a judge, he's declared to be innocent that he has no guilt. Pilate heard the accusations. He inquired into them, and he says, these are baseless. If Jesus was such a dangerous character, then where's his soldiers? Where's the weapons? Where's any social disruption that I would have heard of? There's nothing to these claims. And so Pilate declares him not guilty, and he wants to set Jesus free. But the Sanhedrin's comments, their ongoing pressure lead Pilate to ask more questions, questions that will now lead in verses 6 through 12 for him to be taken to Herod. And we see there that Herod will say that Jesus doesn't deserve death. The second point, Herod and him saying that Jesus doesn't deserve death. Because Pilate is hearing, well, look, these problems are going all the way up to Galilee. So he says, look, is Jesus from Galilee? And Herod being in Jerusalem for the Passover, goes, okay, well, I'm going to send him over to Herod. Herod is quite excited. He's wanted to see Jesus for some time. All the way back in Luke 4, it told of Jesus' actions, what Jesus did being reported throughout the whole region. Everyone had heard about him. In Luke 9, we're told that Herod was seeking to see Jesus. And yet we're also told that Herod wanted to see him merely so he could perform some signs. Herod's not wanting to question Jesus to know, well, hey, should I bow before you? Are you the one God has sent to show us how to live, to live for us? And so when Jesus comes before Herod, he doesn't do any signs. He doesn't answer him at all. 
because he knows what Herod is out to do. If Herod really wanted to know the truth, he could bring in the scores of people who were healed in his region. He could bring in people who were formerly demon-possessed and now sane. He could bring in people and witnesses of people who had been dead and are now alive. There's no lack of evidence. And so after Herod's questioning, after a while, he gives up. And yet Jesus won't answer for many reasons. One of them is Isaiah 53, 7, which predicted he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus here acts in a way that we often would not. Normally, if we're wrongly accused, we respond in anger. That's not right. That's not just. You don't know all the facts. And yet Jesus keeps entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Nevertheless, though, Jesus won't say anything. The religious leaders, we're told in verse 10, have plenty to say. They're angrily, they're vehemently accusing him to Herod. And Herod eventually gives up and he joins his soldiers in mocking Jesus, in beating him. They despise him. They put on these royal-looking clothes and mock him as being a king. And then when he has finished, they lead him back to Pilate. Now, Pilate's going to make clear in verse 15, by Herod sending Jesus back, Herod is saying, Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus is not worthy of any punishment. And this is interesting because while the Sanhedrin can't find any two people to agree against Jesus, we now have two witnesses who have said Jesus is innocent. In Deuteronomy 19, the Old Testament law says you need to make clear a charge by two witnesses. Two witnesses have now affirmed Jesus is innocent. And with this declaration of innocence, Jesus is taken back to Pilate. And we see again a third time that Jesus is declared not to be sinning, not to do anything wrong, not to be evil. We see that in verses 13 through 22, the third point. Because Pilate is really at a loss. He says, look, send him to Herod. I didn't find anything wrong. What do you want me to do? Notice something significant, though, in verse 13. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. This is no longer just the Sanhedrin. As this morning trial has gone on, as Pilate has examined him, as he sent him to Herod, and as now he's come back, the story has spread. And the people, the people who earlier this week were chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are now here at the trial. Luke is showing us, this is not just the religious leaders, but the people of Jerusalem, the people who've come in for the Passover are accomplices to this. And Pilate, again, is telling them, these claims, they don't have any merit. There's nothing Jesus did. He and Pilate, he and Herod, definitely found him deserving nothing worthy of death. Thus, Pilate In his mind, he goes, look, the way forward is, look, I'll punish him. I'll give you all a little appeasement. You clearly don't like this guy, and then I'll let him go. Now, that would be unjust even in and of itself. Well, whip him, why? He didn't do anything wrong. And yet he's trying to find some middle path. And yet, verse 18, 
we see that this just leads the crowd to cry out all the more. You know, a twist is added to the story, though, because every year at Passover, Pilate would release one person. And they now cry out for this man called Barabbas. Now the irony is this, of this is Pilate just said to them, Jesus shouldn't be a prisoner in the first place. He did nothing wrong. Thus, Pilate very well could have released Jesus, because he didn't do anything wrong, and also release Barabbas. It didn't have to be a choice, one or the other. And yet in God's plan, it becomes that way. And those who hate Jesus, they're going to do anything they can to get rid of him. Now remember their first accusation. Their first charge was, this man is stirring up the people. This man is causing chaos in our country. We don't want that. So who's the man they asked to come out? An insurrectionist. Someone who stirs up the people. Someone who causes trouble in the country. Their hypocrisy is so evident. The very thing they're claiming we don't want is exactly what they want released. Barabbas was a clear insurrectionist, we're told in verse 19. He was a clear murderer. And Pilate sees exactly what they're doing. So in verse 20, he again tries to release him. Look, he's not doing anything wrong. I want to release him. And yet notice their shouts. Their shout is that they, that Pilate would crucify him. There's this intensity, a double shout. Crucify. Crucify. Over and over, Luke is showing that the desire to put Jesus to death was not a flight of fancy, not a one-time moment that they said this and then go, ah, we didn't really mean that. Over and over, they are wanting, they are intent on one thing, and that is destroying the Son of God. And yet here, we should realize crucifixion was not any ordinary punishment. Crucifixion was reserved only for the worst of their criminals. And they want the very worst that could be done to be done to Christ. And so Pilate, again, verse 22, he says, for what evil should I do this? It doesn't make any sense. Why would I crucify him? I only do that for the worst of people, and I can't even find a single thing this man has done wrong. Look, he goes on, Jesus didn't do anything worthy of death. And look, again, he tries to appease them. Look, I'll just discipline them and release them. Let's move on. This is ridiculous. Now, it helps us understand the story if we back up and consider a little history about Pilate. Pilate had been brought in, and he did not care at all what the Jews thought. And so early on in his reign, he brought in Roman shields, and on the shields, they had the names of Roman deities. And then he went and put them in the Jewish temple. Well, you can imagine the Jewish leaders and the people's response. They cried out to him, take these away, you're you're blaspheming our temple. And he wouldn't do it. And so they sent leaders to Rome, and the Roman leaders harshly told Pilate to remove them. As well, Pilate took money that was given for the temple and used it to build an aqueduct. On top of all this, in Luke 13, we're told that some Galileans had come down to sacrifice And Pilate had had them killed while making sacrifices. So the Jews really hate Pilate. And Pilate is in a lot of trouble with Rome because they have seen his horrible leadership. And so all of that helps us understand 
though it doesn't make him innocent. But it helps us understand Pilate because he's caught. The people, if they complain to Rome again, I might lose my position. But this man's innocent. So what do I do? He's in this precarious situation. He knows. He's even stated three times, Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve death as well. The man he's being asked to release is a very dangerous man. Again, though, we are clearly shown Jesus was an innocent man. Recently, you were probably aware of many people wanting to tear down monuments and statues in our country. I'm not going to dive into all of that, but I bring it up because often the charge is these people have done wrong in their past. And what they've done in their past makes it illegitimate for us to have any recognition of them today. And yet if we look back in history, there's only one person who could have a monument. There's only one person who could find tooth comb, go through and go, was there anything this man did? No, no, no. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you shouldn't put up a statue because of the second commandment, but that's a whole other discussion. But the point is, there's only been one person in history who had a perfect past. When time after time he was examined, they said, innocent, not guilty, doesn't deserve to be punished. And yet here, they're wanting to do that. And thus we come to the last section, a surprise where people in the pilot say, Jesus shall be crucified, verses 23 through 25. Because the crowd now urges, they even cry louder for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate relents. He passes the sentence on Jesus that they have demanded. He may have been trying to ride the fence. Okay, I know this is unjust, but I'm just going to do this. I can keep in my position. But he will forever be known as the man who condemned Jesus to death. Even today, as we affirm the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. His being in a difficult situation does not excuse his actions. It doesn't ultimately matter that he tried three times to release Jesus. Because when it came down to it, he didn't. His final action was to send the Son of God to his death. Why did he do this, though? Because he was looking for the people of Israel to declare that he was just and right. It doesn't matter that what he knew was unjust, but if they would just tell Rome that what he was doing was just, that is what he wanted. And this is an issue not just that Pilate deals with. This is an issue that we all deal with and we see happening in our world throughout today. The Atlantic reports that this June, Emmanuel Cafferty was driving home from work after a long day of working for the San Diego Electric Company. He was driving his company truck home and had his hand out of his vehicle. As he was at a light, another car pulled up and started cussing at him and yelling at him, and he didn't really know what was going on. And the light turned green, thankfully, and they pulled up to the next light, and it went red. And the truck, the vehicle next to him, started yelling again and making a hand signal. And he didn't know what they were doing, and finally they were saying, like, make this hand signal. And so he made it. And they took out a, pic- a camera and took a picture. And he's like, what in the world? And he drove home. A couple hours later, he got a call. And his boss said, on Twitter, people are showing you making a white supremacist sign. What happened? 
during that phone call, he was told, so many people are upset, we're going to have to suspend you for a couple days. Within a couple days, not only was he suspended, the company came and took his truck. And by the next Monday, his job was taken away. Now, why, why was his job taken away? Because the company wanted to be seen as just. We're the type of company that doesn't allow white supremacy, and they shouldn't. But it was a baseless charge. It was in, instigated by someone who even has admitted he caused it. And this is not just companies in San Diego. All of us have a desire for other people to say, you're just. You're affirming the right things. You believe the right things. You're good. You're right. And yet there's only one person whose opinion matters. It's not what everyone else says. It's what God says. And thus Pilate, caring too much about what everyone else says about him, sends the Son of God to death. And he lets go a clear murderer and an insurrectionist. And so that's the story. And yet, how can this story be the continental divide of the Bible? How can a story of a man being treated unjustly be the pinnacle of the Bible's teachings? It seems so bizarre. How can this be of central importance? What is going on? Well, it would be just an obscure story if this had been Jesus having his plans derailed. This would be just a sad and tragic story if this was not the exact thing that Jesus had planned to happen so that he might be the perfect substitutionary atonement for us. Now that was a mouthful. I even have to pause as I say it to say it correctly. But it's biblical language that we need to understand. So let me unpack it because this is the heart of what the Bible is teaching us that Jesus came to do. So let's begin with that big word, atonement. You know, atonement is expressing this idea that there's two groups and they're not at peace with one another. They need to be brought back together. They need to be reconciled. You see, God made us. He made the world where we were at peace with one another. However, sin brought death to every single relationship. Due to sin, no longer do we walk and talk with God, but we hid from Him. No longer do we rule over the world, but ultimately the world will return us to dust. No, not do we now just have perfect relationships, but our relationships are battle zones. Your sin brought death to every sphere of life. Now sin's curse was not an overreaction by God. It was in fact the very thing he said would happen. You know, God could not just overlook sin. He couldn't just say, well, no big deal, because God is holy and loving. And the only just response to that which destroys his world and destroys his image bearers is just punishment and wrath. And we have a hard time as soon as we hear that word, wrath, God's wrath. And one of the reasons why is we often take what we have experienced and then we project that on God. And what do we think of when we think of wrath? We think of our petty outbursts of anger that are uncontrolled. That is not what you should think of when you read in the Bible God's wrath. God's wrath is his controlled. It is his pure. It is his righteous response to the destruction of people, the destruction of his world, 
the destruction of his image. And this is not some idea later made up by the disciples. Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, the same story, the same conversation of how he's telling that God loved the world, he also says, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When I was a child, I had a strong dislike. My parents always said, hate is a strong word, I'll use it. I had a hate for pimento cheese. My mom told me, you can eat this pimento cheese sandwich, or you can get a spanking. I got a spanking. I put pimento cheese in my mouth, and my body went, Bleh. Maybe it was mind over matter. Maybe I could have eaten it. But when my body had pimento cheese anywhere near it, everything in me said, away. I don't want anything to do with this. If you read in Revelation chapter 3, it's telling of Jesus and his response to when people are lukewarm to God, when they sin. And you know what it says? It says when Jesus sees that, he, he throws it up. He gets it as far away from him. And that is a picture of everything the Bible says about God and sin. It is so opposed to his nature that he gets it as far away as he can. It's opposed to him. Our sin cannot be anywhere near him. You see, the issue is not only is God perfectly holy, but we are sinful. Now, we don't think much of sin because we're so quick to minimize it. Well, yes, I do bad, but I'm not as bad as those people. Well, yes, I do bad, but you don't realize how bad my growing up was. Or you don't realize my genes or the color of my hair or my heritage or the amount of money I have. And all of that gives really an excuse for why I do what I do. Now, are many of those things important? Yes. Do many of those things influence us to do and act a certain way? Yes. But do any of those make us, cause us to do that? No. It is only reacting with the sin inside of us that overflows if we're honest all of us are looking out for one person me or you however that's being referred we all are concerned about us and that's what sin is god made us to think first about him what is the first and greatest commandment you shall love the lord your god and yet we love ourselves and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves either if sin is the rejection of god that says i'm putting myself first and if you fall in line to help me, sure, I'll worship you, as long as it's serving me. Your sin is not just small little acts we do. Sin is treason against our creator. It's our self-dependence. It's our self-rule. It's our self-oriented mindset that says, God, I will only obey you if I think it's good for me. It's a rejection of God. And thus, due to God's nature and ours, there's enmity, there's hostility between us. However, the amazing news is God is just and God is loving. And when he sinned, though there's enmity, he made a way, he promised that he'd make a way to break the curse and atone for our sins. So Jesus came to be that atonement, to bring us back together that we might have peace with God. Well, how did he do that? He did that by being a substitute for us, a substitutionary atonement. Now, why could Jesus be a substitute? Well, remember last week, end of Luke 22, verses 66 through 70, Jesus is talking, and in those short verses, 
it's very clear. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Those three roles allow him to be the substitute between us and God. Son of Man, he was the perfect human who came to represent us and to rule forever. Messiah, the anointed prophet, priest, and king that God had promised. Son of God, he can represent us to God. That's why he can be our substitute. And so this is all coming together in this story. Now, many people have then thought, well, look, what happened is the disciples, they loved Jesus, they followed Jesus, and then the cross, and then they kind of went back and they kind of forged all this together. In the crucible of suffering, they said, how can we make sense of this? And yet what happens was actually foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament. They didn't make anything up. They applied it. Well, how was this foreshadowed? Well, because in the Old Testament, there was a great day. You've probably even heard this day. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Every single year, once a year, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in. And he would make a sacrifice. But it was an interesting sacrifice because he would begin by having two goats. If you want, you can look this up in Leviticus 16. But he would cast lots, and then he would take one goat, and he would sacrifice it. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that's an interesting picture because the Ark of the Covenant was a chest. And in the chest were several things, but one important one was the Ten Commandments. And as God metaphorically looked down from heaven, he would always see the commands, the commands that we were breaking. It was a reminder of our sin. But then the blood was sprinkled on top. And the top of the chest had a name, the mercy seat. So now as God metaphorically looks down from heaven, no longer does he see the reminder of our sin. It is covered with the blood. But the priest wouldn't only do this on the Day of Atonement because after the sacrifices, he'd go back out. And he would take the other goat and he would put his hands on it and he would pray confessing the sins of the people and then that goat would be set free. Never to be used in a sacrifice. Showing that all the sins have been taken care of. You are now free. And so this was foreshadowed by the Day of Atonement but it was also foretold. Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord who would come to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, for his chastisement brought us peace. It brought atonement. It brought reconciliation. And notice how all of this comes together with Barabbas. You remember the storyline. Jesus, innocent, 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 crucified. Barabbas, guilty of insurrection, guilty of murder, Guilty, 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 set free. Well, how do those two match up? Well, because what's happening is Jesus, the innocent one, is coming over and taking the place of Barabbas. And Barabbas, the guilty one, is being given what Jesus deserved. In other words, Jesus was a substitute for Barabbas. And it's a picture of the whole gospel. Jesus is a substitute for sinners. 1 Peter 3.18 says it so succinctly. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. The just one, Jesus, for the unjust one, Barabbas and Jeremy and every one of us. 
And it goes on, that he might bring us to God, atonement, bring us back, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, I'm not aware of anything in church history that tells us anything else about Barabbas. But let's just imagine that day he circled back to Calvary. And he's looking up. What would he need to say? He would have to say, it was my sin that held him there. I'm the one who should be on that cross. And yet he was in my place. And again, this is the picture of the gospel. Jesus, innocent, 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 but condemned. Us, guilty, 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 but set free. Because Jesus was a perfect substitutionary atonement who defeated sin and brings peace with God. Could this really be? I think Gandhi, the famous Indian, India, the country, uh, revolutionary through peace, who brought freedom to his country, expressed what many people think when he wrote, I could accept Jesus as a martyr and an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But there was, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Or John Stott notes it in the Quran five times, various places it says that you can never bear the burden of another. Even Muslims today, they, can, they affirm, yes, Jesus was a prophet, but they cannot accept that Jesus was the Son of God because God would never send his Son to die, they claim. However, let's just assume this is true. Jesus just is an example. What would that mean? Let me give you an illustration. Imagine I wake up in the middle of the night and my house is on fire. And everyone can't wake up, so I'm running in and out and I'm taking him out of the house. And then I have everyone out of the house and finally I go, I just want y'all to know how much I love you. And then I run in to go die. Everyone would think, what? That's not love. That's stupidity. That's craziness. However, if there was still someone in and as I went in, I brought them out and I threw them out in the yard, and then I died, people would say, oh, that was love. He gave his life for them. In other words, what it's trying to convey is if Jesus just died to be an example, it's meaningless. Why would he do that? He's just throwing away his life. But if he died to rescue others, then he is both an example and he is the sacrifice. There is no example if it is just an example. So what was Jesus doing? Well, let's be clear. Jesus was not saving us from the devil, though he did conquer the devil. Jesus was saving us, not by twisting the Father's reluctant arm. Oh, I don't want to save them. Oh, Jesus, you're forcing me to. For it was the Father's love that sent him into the world. Jesus was not saving us from some abstract moral code. And he wasn't forced against his will. Rather, John Stott summarizes this perfectly by writing, divine love triumphed over divine wrath but divine self-sacrifice. The cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, severity and grace, justice and mercy. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God 
sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. And yet in this story, we're being given a picture of what Christ did for us and also a picture of people who are trying to make life right. You know, there's three groups. There's the religious leaders. There's Pilate. There's Barabbas. And they're all trying to get life right in their own thinking, in their own ideas. You know, Barabbas thinks, look, life is going to be right if I can just overthrow the government and get another government in place. That is going to make this world better. Pilate thinks life is right if I can just keep my position. I don't really care about anything else. The religious leaders, if we can just have our power, life is right. And each of them is trying to make the world right, make the world just by themselves. In their own efforts, they are trying to do it. And the Bible presents a totally different message. We can't make the world right. But God came. God the just came to give his life for the unjust. He came and by his substitutionary death, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered the devil, and thus he made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Thus we can humble ourselves. I don't have the resources, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the knowledge to make everything right, but I know the one who does. And it is he alone who can humble us and then lead us to confidence that look my confidence is not that i did all that right my confidence is the one who died in my place over and over he was declared to be innocent and if i'm honest over and over i am shown and declared to be guilty you know in his justice and holiness god would not look over my sin but in his love he didn't let me remain there and so as we look as you focus on the story may you see not just a story of 2,000 years ago of a man being unjustly killed, may you see your sins being put to death on that cross. May you see in your place condemned he stood. Let's pray. Oh Lord, here we are at the pinnacle. May we bow in humble adoration. May we declare how great thou art. Lord, we thank you Nothing in our hands are br we bring. It's simply to your cross that we cling. Oh Lord, thank you for sending your Son. May we understand. May we be humbled and may we go forth in a great, greater love for what your Son did for us. In his name we pray.